Hi, I'm Marty Grizzani, and this is The Marty Grizzani Show. As a full-time real estate investor and business owner, I have a real fascination of finding the key principles for business success and personal development. This show is a reflection of my personal mission to find out what truly makes somebody successful in business and in life. We will find tools and tactics that they've used to reach those levels. If you're the type of person is not satisfied with average and you have a hunger for learning that will never cease, this show is for you. Welcome to the show. What's up, brother? How you doing? What's up, man? Good. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. A lot, a lot of whirlwind year, man. Whirlwind year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, the new office looks great. Yeah, the office came out beautiful. I want to introduce this guy, but you guys got to listen to the last show we did, Jared and I, where we kind of dug into his before and how he got started he he's on a couple podcasts so if you want to know more about him you know in the history listen to those <laughs> book is coming out Eric, can you talk about that yeah well, there was a couple of delays on the book a couple of the chapters needed to get uh, adjusted just with certain things going on in, in my life both personal and business so that should launch probably second quarter in 2024 you know i i'm that quintessential rags to what I like to call purpose. I come from, you know, humble, humble beginnings. And the book talks about, you know, my challenging upbringing and then how I really got into residential and how I evolved into commercial and a lot of commercial real estate war stories, ways that we got super creative out of necessity, buying deals with little to no money down, both in residential and commercial. A little inspirational, motivational, but a lot of good nuggets that you'll be able to take away if you're actually interested in getting involved in commercial real estate. Yeah, the show that we did together was was awesome. I actually re-listened to it before we had we're doing this show, and I skipped over a couple of unbelievable things you said, and some of the things that you said I want to talk about today. Okay, before we do that, why don't you just do a little introduction though on who you are, you know, kind of where you know the business, what you do, and you know where you are located. So people sure. can kind of get a little bit of, of a heads up if they, you know, haven't listened to the previous show. Sure. So we're, we're located in, in South Florida, kind of Fort Lauderdale market. I live in Boca Raton, which is Palm Beach County. Started in residential, bought a course off an infomercial back in the late 90s. Worked the course hard, found a couple guys to take a chance on me with owner financing. I had $1,500 to my name. That was my down payment on the house. Got a couple guys, buddies of mine to help renovate the house get rid of the deadbeat tenant, find a better tenant, raise the rent. I did that a couple of times. And around that time in the early 2000s, banks were starting to allow you to tap equity in these houses, you know, lines of credit. And we had a bank called Wachovia, which is now Wells Fargo. They allowed us to tap equity out of the two houses that we had based on the cash flow. They, I think I pulled fourteen dollars or $15,000 out of the house. It was all the money I, I've ever had in one time at that time. And bought another course to find out where the where the value is on residential houses. And it turned out the value was really on the courthouse steps, buying them at auction. And we got really good at pulling title early on before the auction, bounced between various auctions in various counties of, of Georgia at the time. And, you know, we really got proficient in finding the deals sight unseen, you know, picking up a couple houses every month. And we got up to about 65 houses. And in 2007, I got an unsolicited offer 
to buy a bulk of that portfolio, just unsolicited, dumb luck. It always helps when your first deal goes well. And it, it allowed me to really stockpile my own cash to be ready for the big correction that happened in 08. And around 2010, found another course, which Marty, that's how you and I met, with buy commercial real estate with little to mo no money down. So I was like, all right, it worked the first time with residential. Let me, let me work this course just like I did before. And got into my first apartment complex in 2010. It was 156 unit C-class apartment in South Atlanta. It was as hood as it gets. I had a murder in 30 days. We had fires and the truck going through a building and it really thickened my skin and made me recognize that maybe I need to start looking at other product types within the commercial space. So I got, I dabbled in industrial and retail and office, just trying to figure out where I can scale the best. And that apartment complex was my, my first syndicated deal, brought in nine investors. In 2010, it was still very hard to get financing, especially a new guy that uh, wasn't proven yet and structured a deal with nine investors where they were my debt and my equity. So it's kind of a hybrid structure and it worked out really well. In 16 months, we, you know, we took it through all those challenges and I think we bought it for 9,700 a door. We sold it for just about 18,000 a door in 16 months. And, and, you know, I think, I, I think now back the best thing and the worst thing that happened was I was in multifamily. The best thing, because, you know, I, shit, multifamily in 2010, you know, you were ground zero. The worst thing was I got into class C, so I got a little jaded. I got tainted rather. I, I did not want to deal with multifamily. I just thought it was all designed the same. So I really veered away and really should have kept multifamily in the mix. And now we're at a point where we are starting to look at multifamily again, because I think the opportunities are coming. So that's kind of the 30,000 foot view of how I got started. And it was grassroots, educating myself through self-development courses and, and boot camps and outside of standard academia. And that has served, that served me well. And I, I wouldn't change a thing with that. Yeah. If you listen, go back into the original podcast we did, you know, he basically guys went from living in a, you know, 900 square foot apartment with his grandfather to now own 300, 300. Sorry. I, I was making it sound like he was living in luxury over there, but no, it was 300 square feet, 300 square feet, efficiency apartment. My office that I'm sitting in right now is 420 feet. <laughs> there you guys. And, and rags the purpose for sure. I mean, like I said, you know, 300 square feet apartment that he grew up into owning over 2 million uh, and growing of, of commercial square feet is, is exactly why I wanted this dude back on. And real quick, because we're going to just dive right in. We don't have a lot of time. Have you, have you messed around with ChatGPT? And, and the reason why I'm asking is that you, you have to prompt ChatGPT a little bit. I'm going to prompt you a little bit, okay? Because we know where, you know, we know a little bit about where your business was. I want you to talk to the people, like I want to talk to yourself, right? I'm going to go 15 years ago, 10 years ago, talk to Jared, because that guy is similar to me, similar to our listeners, you know, some, you know, someone that's been in residentials, doing a couple of multifamily, you know, did a multifamily deal, kind of figuring it out, getting some success, getting some wins, right? And, but wants to kind of jump to that next level being, you know, where you're doing and figure profits. Um, and so with the goals that you want and to help the person that you were, how, how do you go from having a couple rental properties, right? To now have, like, how do you go and creating a management company, right? How do you come to a, a management company that's collecting fees, that's paying for an office? What does that look like? 
like if you were talking to somebody who was yourself, you know, five, 10 years ago, I think we're at a point now where I think a lot of people that are listening are going to have an opportunity to do exactly what we did. We caught everything on the basement floor. We got into commercial real estate at the right time. And I think everybody's going to have that opportunity again, if, if you're positioned for it and you educate yourself before it actually happens. For, for us, we, I decided that I'll go out of pocket to build the infrastructure with, and, and in lieu of traditional fees that most syndicators would, would, would charge their investors, I took a heavier back-end promote. So what I basically did is I said, look, I'm going to work for free, guys. You guys are, are nothing is going to dilute the cash flow. You're going to get the cash flow. And once I hit that first hurdle, which let's call it a 7% preferred return or an 8% preferred return, then I'll go ahead and get my heavy promote. So typical standard syndicated promotes are probably closer to 25, 35% tops. You know, that's what the operator will hope for. We were going 50% promotes, but we weren't taking acquisition fees. We weren't taking property management fees. We weren't taking asset management fees. We were, it was completely all the cash flow up to the pref, seven, eight percent, whatever it was, went to the investors. And it was the best thing we ever did because the back end promote from 2010 all the way up to let's call it 2017, 2018, were were massive. We 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 were, you know, we were. We're, we were delivering 50, 60% annualized returns on a total project level on the first 10 deals we did. So that allowed us to stockpile cash, proof of concept to the investors. And, and it showed, look, we are putting our money where our mouth is. We know we're confident. We have a self, high level of self-efficacy that we're going to be able to perform and, and you know deliver you guys a return, but also make it worth our while that we're working for, for free if, thing to, if things don't go well. So that's the first thing I would say is at this moment in time, there's going to be an opportunity where maybe you take a heavier back-end promote, but you work for free. You don't take any asset management fees. You let the investors know, listen, if things go really well, I'm going to do really well. If things go really bad, I've worked for free and you're still making your cash flow. So that worked out really well for us for the first seven, eight years. And then all of a sudden now we're like, all right, well, we don't want, we, we want to start building a portfolio. We don't want to just keep buying. We don't want to keep churning, you know, because then we got to find a new opportunity. So now we're in a position and we've been in this position probably for the better part of five years where we don't want to sell as much. Well, if we don't sell as much, then we don't have that back-end promote to look forward to. And that back-end promote may not exist 10 years from now, right? You know, you have ebbs and flows in the market. Who knows what happens? So we had to flip the script a little bit. What got us here won't get us where we want to go next. So we've we've switched. We've taken now the lower promote and higher standard fees, asset management fee, acquisition fee, development fee, commissions. We're taking the standard fees that every other operator would take, but we're taking a lower promote, and people get that. And we're and we we have a very loyal base of investors that love the annuity. They don't necessarily want their money back, so they're happy that we're going to hold an asset in perpetuity. And the only way we can do that is we have to align ourselves with our investors. And that means we have to get paid while we're holding the asset. So that's why we, we've switched it. And we are solving for, free, for fees even now. Every time we bring in a new analyst or somebody else, we got to feed the beast. And if you know, this year was we bought one deal. Last year, we bought eight deals. 
So if we're not buying, I'm feeding, you know, whatever shortfall there is. There comes a point in time where the operating company becomes a profit center. But let me tell you, it depending on asset class, for us, it's mostly industrial. We would have to approach about one and a half million square feet before it actually becomes a profit profit center or even maybe even revenue neutral, where we have 12 people in the office, let's say, everybody's getting compensated well, bonuses, marketing, all that stuff. One and a half million square feet is the math that we did that we have to accumulate to cover the current infrastructure. So it's a lot. Multifamily, I think, is a little less. You don't necessarily need that many units to cover to cover the infrastructure for that because a lot of that stuff gets third party. You get third party manage that. With industrial, with retail, we tend to manage the, our assets internally. And that's just, that's just cho- uh, choice. So I'm only going by my experience and how we've structured it. But that's really the, that's how we've evolved. Let's promote more fees now over the last four to five years. I love that. And I love that because what a way to gain a loyal investor, yeah. right? Going that way first. So, and then, oh, oh, by the way, to prove it, that you are who you say you are. And then later on, once things are humming and moving and they just trust you that you're just, they're going to keep being able to put money with you and it's going to make the money that they expect. Of course, they expect you to also get paid when you're managing it and you're doing such a good job. You you deserve it, right? So that's, I love that. I'm going to use that. And I think a lot of people will too. I do. I'm going to dive into that just a little bit and and, uh, dissect it. You built the infrastructure first. You self-funded that infrastructure. What does that mean? Did you create the office? Did you hire? Like, what does that look like? Look, you get creative and there's bartering. You know, it doesn't have to be straight up, you know, funding $100,000 into an account to pay for nice furniture, your employees, your your executive assistant. What I did is I teamed up with a, a guy who, he was a, he was a good partner in the beginning. And he bought a building that happened to have executive space, executive suites. And he's like, why don't you operate the executive suites, build out the business and take, take office space? I'm like, okay, that works. I didn't have a lot going on. So I helped build out an executive office, an, an executive suite model with central reception, common you know, amenities like uh, conference rooms, you know, all the way down to copy paper. So I built that out and I got as much office space as I really needed to build out the, the infrastructure. Then I gave away that office space for free to guys that knew a little bit more than me, or you know, one guy in particular who you know, Marty, he had a lot of he had extensive uh, construction knowledge, so he was doing his own thing. And I said, well, why don't you come into my office? Hopefully, we can op- uh, we'll, there'll be opportunities to j- joint venture. But you do your thing, I'll do my thing. You'll help me with any construction projects that I might have going, and I'll help you, you know, with raising capital because I had a better Rolodex than he did. P.S. We turned into a great partnership, but I did all that with really no money. I mean, I did it with a barter system. I said, look, I'll build out the office, the executive suite model for you, partner. And in exchange, I get office space. Uh, and I get the receptionist that's ultimately the receptionist for all the businesses that we rent out to. I get it for myself. So that's how I did it in the beginning. Then at some point, you really need an assistant that's with you and, you know, assistant and a bookkeeper. Those are the two things, first and foremost, you got to have that. And then if you're lucky, by that time, you find a number two. You find the guy that, that is good at all the things you're not. And, and I was lucky enough to find out with my partner, Aaron. Um, and I know he'd say the same thing. We, we compliment each other from day one. So that, that was kind of the sequence of events that got us to 
building a small infrastructure to buy deep value at deals and where we really could only focus on one project at a time, which was fine because we didn't have a big infrastructure anyways. Those deep value at deals at that time were the catalyst to building an amazing business with amazing investors and, and really allowed us to really, to, to, you know, our first deal that we did together was, I don't know, a million and a half dollar profit in our pocket after paying all our investors inside of 14 months. So that really got us going. And I mean, I can go in, I could spend a whole podcast just on that project, but that's it. You, to be laser focused, not go after all the, all the deals that you could possibly find. Find one deal, one deal like you did. You found that one deal, value add as can be, and uh, you, you figured out how to structure it. And I, I would venture to say that that deal, you're not going to, I don't think you were, you're going to hold it long-term, are you? We might, but I probably not. Right. Only because it's so close to us, but probably not. It depends where you are. Like for us, the beginning stages was stockpiling cash for ourselves, proof of concept to our investors. The only way to do that is to buy, fix, flip, and follow the projections that you laid out in an investor summary. You know, follow it as a like a blueprint. And we did that 10 or 15 times before we said, okay, it's a five-year projection, but Mr. Invest, Mr. and Mrs. Investors. We want to hang on to this asset. So if you want out, we're happy to buy you out. But we're going to hang on to this asset indefinitely. Nobody wants out because the projects that we and we, we we're holding are cash flowing well, and it's a great annuity for everybody. So it comes with time. But in the beginning, you're going to want to fix and flip. Right. The syndicated model is designed to fix and flip. That that's you're paying a pref. That preferred return, especially in today's interest rate environment, you're not going to be able to cover the pref nine times out of ten. Um, which means it accrues, which means the longer it goes accruing, the less and less and less and less and less promote that you can look forward to on the back end. Then God forbid the market corrects. Now you got nothing to look forward to at the end. So right. the, the idea, the syndication model is truly designed to churn and burn. You mm. know? No one's ever said that. That's the way you'll never meet a syndicator that actually says, yeah, no, we hold all our assets. It's been 12 years now. We've held all our assets. No way. Mm. And it's like that in the fund model too. At a certain point, at a certain at a certain point, you become seasoned enough where you can have these these conversations with your investor base, and you can tell the investors, "Look, I'm going to put I'm going to put pen to paper. Here's our financial projections. This is based on a five year exit. I need that exit to determine what the the internal rate of return is going to be to the investor. But the reality is, Mister Investor, we don't want to sell this. We're probably going to hold this thing for ten years." So if you're not looking long-term, maybe even up to 10 years, then don't come in on this deal. You can only do that when you prove, you know, when you have proof of concept. And that's the only reason I mentioned that to you, where depending on the investor base that you have in that deal, you're probably going to want to do what you do what you said you're going to do and flip it. Throw a bunch of money back at them, pocket a bunch of money on, you know, pocket your promote and move on you to mentioned, the You mentioned the, the way you structured in the beginning with, you know, Heavy on the promote, right? Like with this deal that I did, it was I'm 20% owner. If there's four other partners that are also 20, and then we basically have our our money guy is like 19, but he brought all the money to the deal, right? And he didn't want to sign in the debt. Basically, we had to sign because anything over whatever 19, you'd have to sign. 100%. Yeah. 
So, but it's like a hybrid of that. They so also get a prefer. Go ahead. Everybody's 20%. Everyone's pretty much 20%. Yep. Yep. So in in that sense, there's really no promote, right? I mean, right. You, you get what I'm saying? Because there's no like, we're owners. And so I'm just trying to think. Honestly, well, you're a promote. Your promote is 20% if you have no money in the deal. That's fair. Yes, that's true. Correct. There is a promote, but there's no, like when you are looking at deals, right? Because again, in promote, can you explain a little bit what that is for people who don't know what that is? Yeah. So for example, the way we structure our deals, we'll put in 10% of the equity required. We'll raise the other 90%. So if it's a $10 million building and we get $6 million in debt, Theoretically, that's $4 million that we would have to raise. Now we have closing costs, CapEx, all that stuff. So let's call it $5 million that we have to raise, right? Of that $5 million, we'll personally put up 500,000 and then we'll raise the other four and a half million. So they put up 90%, we put up 10%. But after we cross a hurdle, which is called a preferred, we have a preferred return, which let's say it's 7%. So that four and a half million dollars is earning 7% before we see a dime. Once we get over that 7%, we get 50% of the excess cash flow. Right? Got it. Does that make sense? So, yep. so we get 50% over that pref. We have to meet that pref or else we're essentially working for free. Correct. And if we sell the asset, everybody gets their money back. Everybody gets whatever accrued pref that we didn't pay. The bank gets paid back. And whatever the balance, whatever the profits left, we split 50 50. So the promote for us in that, in that example, the promote is 40%. We have a 40% promote. We bought 10% and we, we got 40% of the membership interest essentially for free. Got it. Got now it's it. not free, it's sweat equity, whatever you want to call it. Correct. But that's, that's what we, and, and we always, the promotes sound high. And they are, if it's a bigger deal, like it's a $50 million deal, nobody gets a 50% promote. If it's a $5 million deal, well, we kind of need a 50% promote because there's not a lot of dollars on the back end of a $5 million deal if we turn it to $6 million. You know, we work a certain amount of years to make that happen. You know, there's no dollars. It, we're about, we're all, the, the, the general partner, the operator needs to focus on the dollars that they make in their pocket on the back end, not percentage of return because we have very little dollars in the deal. So we need to figure out what's our time worth and how, and is the, is the juice worth the squeeze on the dollars on the back end? Um, so, so that, that's, that's, that's when we model the deal, we say, okay, I know I can sell to my investors. Let's call it a 15% annualized return on a deal that cash flows almost immediately with some value add elements to it. I know I can sell that 15%. Can I give a 15% and at the same time, take a 40% promote? Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can't make those numbers work, which means I have to take a less of a promote. I can't go back to my investors. I can't go to my investors and say, hey, will you take a 13? 15 is I know what I can sell. They, I can sell that. They, they expect that. When they see the investor summary, they're looking forward to that. So that means I have to take a lower promote. Now, if the promote is too low, well, I got to get a lower price on the property, right? I need to do it. I, I can't make the numbers work. So every, every deal is going to be different, but that's, that's how we really model our deals. And that's how we, we work within that framework. We know what we can sell our investors on an IRR and we know what promote we typically need based on a, a, the size deal. 
Yeah, that's great. No one's really talked about that. No one really talks about, you know, you kind of have to work backwards and you really should know as the GP, like you said, who cares necessarily about the percentage? Because what's the money in my pocket going to look like? That's what we're doing this for, honestly. So what is the, when you're looking at a deal, what's like the ideal number for you guys now? Like, what is it? Like, where, where, what are you looking for that would get you really excited? So when we model, when we model our deals, we're always looking at a total project level return based on a certain hold period, based on certain cash flow, based on an exit value that we pin a cap rate to, to determine the value. Once we model all that out, we're looking these days, if we find something that's an 18, 18 internal rate of return after factoring in exit, cash flow, all that stuff, we get excited about the deal. And, and that all comes down to your cost of capital. So in, in the last scenario I just mentioned, theoretically, our cost of capital is 15%. That's our cost of capital. Because I know I can raise money as long as I show a reasonable model that can achieve 15% IRR to my investors. I know I can raise the money. If I show them a 10% re- uh, return, I'm going to have a hard time raising money. So 15, uh, an 18 total project level allows me to get 15 to my investors. That's, and I don't want to get too, I'm trying not to get too technical, but it all comes down to cost. Please of do. If some people have family money and they only want to make 9%, well, that's great. Guess what? You're going to be able to pay more for that property than I'm going to be able to pay. And this, here lies the problem with the small guys like us against the behemoths like Blackstone. Their cost of capital is single digits. Right, our cost of capital is double digits. We cannot compete on most of those larger assets, which is why we're scrappers and we go after two million dollar deals, five million dollar deals, ten million dollar deals, twenty tops. Right, anything else you start to get into an institutional level where you're playing with guys that have much lower cost of capital than you, and a lot of times when you make offers, it's an exercise in futility. You're never going to get the deal. They can pay a lot more than you can. Mm. Is that somewhere? You see Geneva at some point, like where, where do you want to, you know, what's kind of one of the goals that you have, you know, it's a, so our investors, anybody would look at risk reward, you know, and as you prove how low risk you are as an operator, the lower cost of capital you may have, you may be able to achieve with your investors. I used to have to give my investors 18%. Now they know that we're a pretty safe play. And I can, I can structure a deal where they get a 15. In some cases, there are certain deals that I could do where maybe they only need a 13% return. So I could pay a little more for the project, the property, because my cost of capital now is 13, like on an apartment complex where people know that we have experience with apartments and people, the, the, the backstory of apartments is great. It's been a somewhat of a safe haven in this big correction or in this, you know, interest rate environment. So investors are willing to go 13. So as we do more and more and more deals, my cost of capital essentially gets lower because I'm less risk to my investors. We will always stay the syndication route on most of the projects that we do. However, there is a a need. These institutions, family offices, private equity firms, there is a need for guys like you and me. They need operators to find the deal, work the deal, deliver them a return. 
So we're, we're looking at a couple projects a year to do with a more programmatic structure with an institution. That's high cost capital. They want to see, you know, at least a 15, 16% IRR standard waterfall structure where, you know, we don't get a big promote. If we achieve certain hurdles beyond just that preferred return we talked about, then we have an ability to get a higher and higher promote. So, and that, again, not to get too technical, but that model allows us to solve for fees. So maybe we have a lower promote, which we would, we'd have a lower promote with an institution versus a retail investor, but we would get fees. We would get asset management fees. We could take down larger deals. You know, for me to raise $10 million from our, our retail investors, it's a little bit of stress. I got to raise 10 million bucks in 30 days. Sometimes, you know, depending on how juicy the deal is, I might have challenges raising that kind of cash. Whereas an institution, $10 million equity check is no problem. That's what they want. Matter of fact, that's most of the time, that's the minimum. So it's easier to work a deal with them. You only have to sell it one time to one investor and they'll give you your fees, but the back end is much, much lower. So if that deal went well, I'm going to make half the profit working with an institution than I would with my retail investor. Mm. But I need them. I need to solve for fees to, to build my infrastructure. And my investors want that. My investors want me to go and do that with institutions to solve for fees, to build the infrastructure, to do the letter campaigns, to do the cold right. calling, have my analysts, my acquisitions guy, and my PMs internally, and, and all our infrastructure to refine our, uh, our operations to really boost force of value into our syndicated projects much quicker. So it is a compliment to, uh, to, to both sides. And my investors get it. They understand. Because a lot of times we get asked, why didn't we get that deal? Why'd you go to an institution? Well, first of all, I couldn't raise this kind of cash. It was a $15 million equity check. Um, yes, I appreciate it. You would have been in, but I couldn't raise the rest of it. And it creates a lot of complexity if I raise 10, bringing a, a, a private equity fund in for five. It's a lot easier just to give them the whole 15. Right. That makes sense. You know, it's it's a balancing act. You know, as you get bigger, you you also have to kind of do those things. It, it, because you do want to, you, you need to have your office be the best it can be to compete in, this, in these environments. So like, you, hey, I need to do these types of deals to, to pay for that analyst, to pay for that, you know, killer salesperson, right? So it's like, as you grow, you kind of start having to, you know, sign some real big checks, not just personally, but just with like your, holy shit, you know, we got to do this, you know, if we want to keep growing and getting uncomfortable and doing all those things. and so. I guess there's always for, growth. No, and you got to pay for talent. Yeah. And again, we're, the whole thing, what got us here won't get us there. You right. know, we, we, I have lofty goals. And you know, the goal is to hit 650,000 square feet a year for the next five years. Mm. That's what we want to hit. And I've done the math on the product types that we buy. We buy small bay industrial for the most part. And based on what I know about it, how much management intensity there is, how many people I'm going to need based on square footage, Based and, and what the cost will uh, cost associated with rehiring all those people for that much square feet, and then how much distributable cash flow that kicks out. I've done all that math, and I know that six hundred fifty thousand square feet over five years generates X dollars, and you know will cover my overhead and generate enough cash flow for me to focus on my other bigger goals, which is charity and. You know, frankly, living the life that we all dream of, right? Enjoying all the conveniences of life, the best vacations, 
you know, the best education for your kids, you know, just not having to worry anymore. And Jared, that's the great thing about uh, ours. You know, this is, it, it is, uh, you never have to retire. I mean, it, it, when you want to work this, when you want to work in this industry, you can work this industry. When you want to pull back for the next month and go, you know, go cruise the Amalfi Coast, you can do it, right? You, you have the self-managing company that we've been to trying to build over the years where if I'm not buying anything, there's really not a whole hell of a lot for me to do, right? I, I got a number two that's operations that runs everything. PMs, accounting, acquisitions, construction, they all know what to do without me. I'm not running all over the place. And when I'm not buying anything, there's not much for me to do. And that's why I've, I've actually pulled back quite a bit in the last four or five months. And I've never done that in, since I was 13 years old. I've worked. So it's, it's, it's reinforced what a great industry this truly is. You can work as hard as you want. And when you get to a certain point, you don't really have to work that much anymore. Well, you earned it. And, you know, it's, it's the fruits of the labor, but you, you put the time in and that's kind of where we're at now. I think a lot of the listeners are, are in that like beginning stage or like, Hey, the grind stage and, you know, figuring out ways to enjoy that because I do believe I just saw something where it's like, it's like you just, you, you put it in, you put the time and you put the time and you put that grind in and all of a sudden then it go and then it goes like commercial, you know, is, is what I'm finding. Like finding the deal, like, God, just going through shit after shit after shit of just looking at deals that don't make sense. And then all of a sudden you, you hit that point. I mean, what, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Is it just something that, yeah, enjoy the grind because it's, you're going to look at a lot of crap before you find that right one. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Look, here, here's what happens in this business. You buy, you know, your first deal is a 10,000 foot shopping center. And uh, you got owner financing and maybe you're out of pocket, a hundred grand and maybe brought in investors and it's 50% vacant. And all of a sudden, dumb luck, you got a national credit tenant that wants to take the vacant space. And all of a sudden that drops, the, the cap rate increases the value of the property. You weren't expecting that. You weren't projecting that. You didn't tell your investors that, but it happens. It does happen. It doesn't may not happen on your first deal. But as you build the portfolio, whether it's a $2 million deal or a $5 million or a $20 million deal, it's, it's a lot of times luck finds you because you put yourself in the position for it to find you. And that comes down to not getting one dealitis. Um, get your deal. You know, if it's multifamily, great. You know, think about the people that got into multifamily early on. They bought shit properties at $15,000 a door, didn't sell. Who the hell knew multifamily was going to do this for the next 11 years, right? And that's what it did, right? And then forget COVID. I mean, it just spiked it even more. And then the interest rates dropped. I mean, it was a perfect storm for the best asset class to forget doubling your equity. How about doubling the total project, right? It's one thing going from $5 million, raise, raising $5 million and turning it into $10 million. But how about raising $5 million, buying an asset that was $20 million, and now the asset's $40 million. Right. And that's exactly what happened to multifamily investors. Guys our age are flying private everywhere. There's no way they projected that. Right. So this business allows you to get really fucking lucky, really yeah. lucky. But there are certain rules that are you know very serious rules that you have to follow. What's your exit? Are you in a market where you got to find some sucker bigger than you 
to buy that asset. You know, there's so many people that get enamored. Let's talk multifamily, get enamored with price per door, right? Oh my God, this is only $30,000 a door in today's environment. Well, I mean, if it's in the most tertiary market in bumfuck USA, um, that's great. 30,000 a door. How much management intensity is there going to be? How screwed are you going to get by contractors that have a, a monopoly on that market? Because there is no other drywall guy. There is no other mold remediation guy or five, you know, you know, whatever that happens all the time and you get royally screwed. Then you got to find the exit. So you got to follow the, you got to follow a certain set of rules. If it's retail, don't buy an, don't buy a retail shopping center that has 4,000 cars a day passing by it. You're setting yourself up for failure. Find a retail center. It's got 30,000 cars in front of it. Find a, a retail center. It's in a, a major metro market. You know, Charlie Munger, partners of Warren Buffett just died. Yeah. And Charlie Munger, Munger was instrumental in getting Buffett to look at businesses and pay up for, for companies that showed more value. Real estate's the same way. Don't get enamored by the price per door in a multifamily. Pay the $50,000 a door versus the $30,000 a door in those, in those markets because it's just a better pocket in that market. Pay $160 a door for a really good market where rent growth is coming because people are constantly moving into the play market. You get drivers into that market. I would rather buy a deal for $160,000 a door at a lower cap rate if the value is there, you know, where I could raise rents. Versus 30 a door, and oh my God, on paper it screams, but I got the contractor issue I mentioned where they got a monopoly on you. I'm dealing with much more riffraff tenants. There's no drivers to that market, so the unemployment rate is higher. People are moving out of the market. You're you're stacking the odds against yourself all because it's a cheaper asset, right? Price is only relevant in the absence of value. So that's the first thing I would tell anybody. And that's the biggest, that's that's the one thing I would tell the Jared 11 years ago, when I got my first, or 12 years, 12 years ago, my first apartment complex, Jared, don't do this deal. It was $9,700 a door. Don't do this deal. I, I, we talked about this in the last podcast. I won on that deal because I bought it at the right time. I didn't know that. I didn't know the market was just going to keep going, but it was not the right deal. And I would never do it again. I'd never buy a C-class apartment complex ever again. I don't care where it is. And that's just lessons learned. And people make money with it. I'm not saying you can't make money, but you're stacking the chips against you. If you guys go back and listen to that, that was unbelievable. That's what we. That's why Jared, my favorite guest, that comes on my show, and one of my favorites. It's not. He's top two. He's top two. <laughs> so, but my last thing, we got to wrap up. I know he's got a heart out at twelve, so it's about a minute. I want to talk about brokers. I want to talk about real quick. How do you talk to your Again, talk to Jared 12 years ago. You know that you're looking to maybe get out into industrial like myself, right? You, you bought one or maybe you're looking at one, whatever. How do you intentionally network with brokers that make so that they know that you're not, you know, you're not full of shit? Like, how do you, what do you do? What would you say is like, oh, this is a slick trick. Do this. In the, be- in the beginning stages of a career? Yes. You get them to really, you know, hey, this is somebody that I'm willing to, or is it just time? They're just time in the market. It certainly helps. I mean, time in the market is so important, but the best thing I ever did was find those boot camps and get, get more experience just in the nomenclatures of the business where I learned the terms of the business. I understand, you know, just the basic stuff, right? It's 
hopefully most of your listeners understand what a cap rate is, cash on cash returns, IRR. You know, those things are important when you talk to your investor base, but you got to be able to talk. You got to be able to ask questions to a broker where the broker knows that either you were a broker, you have families, you come from a family of real estate people. You got to know, like if I'm here are my checklist with, with a broker now, I mean, it rolls off the tongue now, but when in the beginning, after going to those boot camps, I knew to talk to the brokers and say, okay, do you know what the traffic count is in front of the center? Okay, great. You know what the daytime population is? What's the parking ratio? Any issues with the visibility, access, you know, is, is the, the egress good? What else? What's the, what's the finish in the units? Is it, is it predominantly office? Is it more just open showroom? You know, the, when you start to ask those type of questions, the brokers recognize that you've done this before, even if you didn't, right? Even if you didn't, but you got to get good at that. And it starts with educating yourself. And look, books, books will go so far. If, if you're one of those guys, you know, if, if you have engineers as listeners, maybe they can read a book and really absorb. Guys like me don't absorb from a book. I got to be in a boot camp. I got to be in a, a course where I can... Uh, I can ask questions, I follow up questions, you know, but you got to educate yourself to be able to talk the talk with your lender, with your broker, with your investors. That's the first thing I would tell anybody to do. You can't just go in and say, I want to get into uh, retail shopping centers. I have a couple houses. I'm ready to get in commercial. Let's go. Let me go find a deal. You're going to make a mistake. You got to educate yourself. And, it, and there's so much, there's so much out there now. There's so much out there to educate yourself for free. Then if you want to go a step further, then you go into mastermind groups like you and I met. And that, that changed everything. It changed everything. And it started with the ability to talk the talk with the brokers. That's it, guys. That's, that's what I needed to hear again. I hope you needed to hear that. I hope that helped you. I know it helped me. Jared Almar, thanks for coming on, brother. I appreciate you a lot. Marty, I appreciate it, man. I'll be seeing you soon. All right, guys. Take care. Take care. Thank you for tuning into the Marty Grizzani Show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us an honest rating and review. If you're on Spotify, make sure you follow us for weekly episodes. Yeah.